Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 78 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Cannoli Fingers, and I'm joined here by my amiable co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader, the man who used to control the order flow of Canadian mining companies with just two Motorola flip phones, the man who brought infamy to House Street, Regina's prodigal son, JJ. How's it going? <laughs> good, brother. How are you? I'm doing good, man. And I'm excited for our guest today. He worked at Goldman Sachs Investment Banking, Equities, and Private Wealth Management Divisions. He went on to create Oscar Capital Management, which sold in 2001. In 05, he founded the investment firm Skybridge Capital former White House Director of Communications and the founder of the SALT Conference, a.k.a. The Mooch. I'm talking about Anthony Scaramucci. Mooch, how's it going? Ray, you left out two firings, man. You know, I got fired from Goldman, and then I got rehired. And then, of course, I got bounced from the White House. So you left out. It was good, though. I mean, you read it well. JJ, I'm, I'm one of the few <laughs> Americans that have been to Regina. Have you? Saskatchewan. Okay, now let me tell you how I got there. My first oh. job at Goldman I, I, I got in, I got staffed on the selling of sh- the Cadillac Fairview shopping malls. Okay. So I lived in Eaton Center oh and God. Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto. And I traveled to Regina, Calgary, Vancouver, visiting shopping malls. I'm sure as a kid, you were hanging out in that dowdy shopping mall in Regina, Saskatchewan. Am I wrong? No, you are right on, right on the ball. Exactly. It's uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. And hey, you're from Blog Island. All my favorite people are from Blog Island. So. Of, course, of course, there's something in the water on Long Island where we all act a little crazy, and then we say whatever <laughs> the hell comes to our mind, right? I love it. So, yeah. but I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Canada. God bless you. All right, so let's go, Ray. What do you want to talk about? Big shout out to Canada. Well, well, you know, Mooch, I wanted to say I was I wanted to be kind to you in your intro. Uh, you know, I'm a fellow Italian. I, you know, I, I always root, you know, no matter what the endeavor is. And, you know, as I was uh, prepping for this podcast, I seen you're an actual honorary citizen of uh, a town in Italy. How did how did this come about? Well, I mean, one of the best things that happens to you when you get fired, like my ass got fired from the White House, you become fairly well known in a very short period of time. And so I guess uh, a couple of people in Italy were like, okay, well, this guy's obviously got an Italian last name. Where the hell did the family come from? Mm -hmm. And my father's family came from Gualdo Tadino. I'm not probably pronouncing it perfectly, but the mayor called me uh, and he said, hey, I want to tell you about your grandfather, Alessandro Scaramucci, where he was born, when he immigrated to the US, what his family did. And you, you may know this from Italian history, they kept these sort of Napoleonic codes of everybody's birth. And so your family, my family, anybody from Italy, you can take it back probably to the 1750s, who your ancestors were uh, as a result of that. And so they, they, they handed me this very elaborate family tree. And then they, uh, the legislature there voted me an honorary citizen. Unfortunately, it was during COVID, so I had to accept the acclamation over Zoom. Uh, but apparently this coming June, I'll be there for a more formal in-person ceremony. But I got to tell you, it was one of the 
the the big joys of my life. I even got like some ceramic. I mean, you know, you got, I mean, this is some old school shit, this ceramic. Thing. I don't have it here. I had to give it to my mother, you know, yeah. but it's like, I mean, this is some old school stuff. It's like right out of Tony Roma furniture in lower Manhattan, you know, now JJ's, JJ's laughing because he probably grew up with Italians and says, Ray, you're Italian. Somebody in your ancestry had plastic on their furniture. Of you course. About, right? my, my grandmother. Of course. Of course. Plastic of course. runways. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, Nana, when are we going to take the burn? You're going to die, Nana. We got to get the we got to get the plastic off. the apartment, <laughs> right? But I mean, that's how we grew up. You know, we had no money, uh, came from the old country. My father was a laborer. My grandfather was a coal miner. My mom's dad was a mason. Uh, you know, there was no money. Uh, and these people worked their asses up. But man, did they love this country. I'm sure they felt the same way about Canada. I know there's a huge Italian population in places like Toronto. There is. But, you know, I'll tell you, man, it was a great place to grow up and it was a great culture to grow up in because, you know, we learned about values and family sticking up for ourselves, mm -hmm. taking on bullies, uh, uh, taking no prisoners in life. Uh, but at least, you know, for my folks, they wanted us to get educated. Um, when I got to Tufts, my father thought it was spelled T-O-U-G-H-S. That's how clueless. <laughs> Right. My mother thought Harvard Law School was Hartford Law School. We still tease her. She's going to be 85 this month. And I'm like, my, you thought I was going to Hartford Law School. She said, what did I know? What did I care? You know, I didn't even care. When I told my mother I was going to Goldman Sachs, she was like, is that a law firm? <laughs> and I'm like, no, my, it's not a law firm. Jesus Christ, I'm going to kill myself. You mean you went to law school? And you're not going to be a lawyer? <laughs> I think out of embarrassment for about 10 solid years, she told her friends that Goldman Sachs was a law firm, okay, because she didn't understand how somebody could go to law school and not become a lawyer. But I got to tell the two of you something. The only thing I learned at law school, don't be a lawyer. That was the number <laughs> one thing I learned. Okay? I don't know how you could have gotten through that otherwise. You know what I mean? You know, Anthony, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious. How did you uh, fit in when you went to Harvard? Uh, were you kind of, uh, I'd imagine, probably a little bit different than a lot of the, the applicants that go to Harvard? Like a fish out of water, my man. Okay. I'm going to tell you a funny story. Okay. I'm in the uh, Harvard Law School bookstore. I got my black motorcycle leather jacket on. You know, I grew up in a motorcycle shop. My, my uncle owned a motorcycle shop on Long Island. Oh, I went to work for him at age 11. I was there until I was 21. Every summer uh, when I was home from school, I worked there. I was, I was there working in high school there. Uh, met Billy Joel there for the first time, actually, big motorcycle enthusiast out here on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And I had my black Guinea t-shirt on, my, <laughs> my Harley Davidson or Hein Garrick leather jacket, and my Levi's jeans. And of course, I had gold chains on my neck because, I mean, we're talking, this is the 80s, man, right? <laughs> and it was September of 1986, and I was in the law school bookstore. And this kid who went to high school with me, he was a year older than me. He looked over at me. He goes, oh, are you Anthony Scaramucci? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I'm so-and-so. I said, oh, yeah, I knew who he was. Said, Great to meet you. He goes, you're here to see Jeff? And I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. And then it dawned on me. He, he, he did not think I was going to Harvard Law School. He thought I was there to see another one of our friends that was going to Harvard Law School. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, I'm here to see Jeff, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> next fucking day. Are you allowed to curse on this spot? I'm assuming. Yeah, oh, you yeah. Are. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I figured there's no way you'd invite me on. I wasn't allowed to fucking curse. But yeah, yeah. so the next <laughs> fucking day, the guy is sitting next to me in contracts. Do you love that? That's okay, because no, I wasn't, suppo- I wasn't supposed to be there. It was like Goodwill hunting, you know, but I had a high, <laughs> had a high IQ. I, I tested well. I graduated with honors from Tufts. Um, and uh, that's that's the uh, that's the story, you know. Yeah, love to hear it. Love to hear it. Just remind it to the listeners. You guys like to join JJ, myself. But it was intimidating, though, right? I don't want to bullshit you. Like, yeah, I was intimidated. You know, you had people there that were wicked smart. And I had no money. Okay. And so you got to mm-hmm. just think about it. You know, these people yeah. were going to school. The parents were well healed. A lot of them had gone to these very fancy pants boarding schools and they were dressed in fancy pants sort of ways. You know, when I went mm-hmm. to my first job interview with Goldman, I was in 100% poly. I mean, I've told the story before, but I had a black Guido tie on. I had white on white polyester shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the fucking Capizio dance shoes from the 1970s. <laughs> you know, you could call them cockroach killers in my neighborhood. Yeah. They had like yeah. points on them. Yeah, you see, JJ's of my vintage. So he knows what I'm exactly, talking about. Exactly, exactly. Was blown back like Tony Monero from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> nice. You, know, you could hear the fucking BG soundtrack when I walked <laughs> into that Goldman Sachs interview. Right? I, I either look like a young Undertaker, okay, or, uh, or somebody, or somebody that was mo- modeling polyester at the Size Sims apparel store. And I, I'll never forget the Goldman guy. Right when I was giving him the, uh, I was elocuting the what the Ted spread meant and how the uh-huh. petrodollar traded off of uh, the Euro dollar and how treasuries were lined up versus LIBOR. And we were going over everything. And then he says, okay, let me do a net present value calculation of this cash flow stream. And I was doing it in my head. And he said, well, what, what's the equation? And I took the, I took, I took out a piece of paper. I wrote the equation down for him. I said, that's, that's, I mean, I'm roughly right. Right. He goes, Oh yeah, no, you're exactly right. He said, well, let me tell you something. He says, you are the worst fucking guy that we have met at the Harvard Law School. The worst fucking dress guy. I looked at him. I said, really? He said, I've never seen anybody dress like this. I said, you're like a cartoon character. I mean, I was like fully flammable for the interview. Busted in the flames. And he's like, you got to go to Brooks Brothers and you got to buy yourself a natural fiber suit and some natural fiber shirts. Otherwise, I can't invite you down to Goldman. I remember being mortified, guys. I mean, I was like mortified. Uh, I picked up the phone. I called my mother. I'm like, Mom. And she's like, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You looked amazing. I said, Mom, I don't really <laughs> think I looked amazing, Mom. I think I looked like absolute shit. I was mortified. So I like, I like bringing that story up because it's a right of path. You want to move from the middle class in a blue-collar neighborhood where no one went to college, and you want to hustle your way in a place like Goldman, you are going to stumble. You're going to trip over yourself. You're going to be filled with uh, some levels of self-loathing, but also some levels of self-consciousness. Um, you got young people that listen to your podcast. And so my message to you guys is push yourselves. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't take no for an answer. Okay. Be willing to push through that fear of failure and that self-consciousness and all of the things that come with that. And also, you know, when you're coming from a neighborhood like mine, you know, many people told me, oh man, come on, you can't make it in exactly. Wall Street. Those guys want you to landscape their houses. They don't want you to work in the trading room with them. Exactly. You're never going to make it. You're never going to make it. Never going to make it. 
How many oh. times did I hear that in my life? Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to this podcast, you got a lot of young people listening. If someone's telling you never going to make it, buck your ass up. Okay. You got to think like a Super Bowl. You're not a piece of bone China. When you hit the floor, you're going to crack like bone China or you're going to bounce like a Super Bowl. You got to make a decision. You got to do it right away. And when you do that, if you do something really jackass stupid in the White House and you get your ass fired and you get annihilated by the press and all the late night comedians, you'll recover from it. But if you can't do that, you're going to get rolled. You don't want to get rolled, do you? You want to exactly. get rolled, Ray? Exactly. I don't want to get rolled. Absolutely JJ's not. had his career. You're like a nice young guy. You don't want to get rolled. So what you want to do is you want to keep pushing. Always push and stay positive. And your mindset is going to set your world not the world and the situations around you, but your mindset towards those things is going to set your world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, uh, you know, Mooch, would you say that's, you know, when you, when you were feeling, uh, you know, the, the feelings you had when you went to Harvard of, you know, uh, not, not belonging or feeling inferior. Inadequacy, yeah. imposter syndrome, self-doubt, self-consciousness. Sure. I felt all that. Yeah, yeah, was, you know, then, that... then when I started getting my grades back, I was like, okay, these guys are not any fucking smarter than me. All right. But I also remember, I'm going to tell you something else for sure. And I remember saying this to these guys at, at, at law school and there were some punks at the law school, you know, some smug, arrogant punks. I remember looking at some of these guys saying, you know, you know, smarter than the kids in my neighborhood. All right. I mean, I know buddies of mine that are putting in sheetrock right now because their fathers put sheetrock in. Mm -hmm. Their IQs are as high as yours, you know, so just don't forget that about the serendipity of life. Some of it is your brain. Some of it is your education, your willingness to work, but some of it is your circumstances and your luck. Yeah, sure. Sure. You know? I mean, you're, you know, my parents were like, do whatever the hell you want, which is I, I've said to my kids, but I had buddies of mine like, look, man, I'm a plumber. You're going to be a plumber. I'm a sheetrock installer. Uh, forget that dream of yours. You're going to start installing sheetrock. The minute you leave high school, see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And Anthony, we, you know, we've talked to a lot of traders we've had on the podcast about, uh, you know, a lot of people maybe from like the Ivy league backgrounds actually don't make the best traders. And I know JJ, you've, you've encountered this too. It's a lot of the street smart guys are the Some ones of the who have been the best traders. Yeah. Go ahead. Guy, yeah. Guys from, you know, long Island. I mean, my best friend who passed away was from Miller place. I'm God, you know, this know is, Miller place out East. Yep. Yeah. You know, and so all the guys I did business with were all Miller place, Port Jeff, um, you know, and they were street smart guys, you know, they went to reform school, <laughs> you know, but they would trade circles around a lot of people, you know? Well, I was shooting craps at 12 <laughs> years old. <laughs> on a Thursday night in my uncle's motorcycle shop. We used to bring, used to make me bring the lamp from down upstairs in the office. You'd put it up against the parts counter. We'd take the lampshade off. So it was a light bulb and we had dice. Of course he would used to kick our asses. And then it took me about a year to figure out he had loaded the dice. <laughs> and so that's how I grew up. Okay. Yeah. And, and, but I also, you know, had an Ivy league education, but I mm -hmm. had that, street education. You know, my exactly. uncle, my uncle was one tough son of a bitch. He was a world war II vet. Uh, he baptized everybody uh, by fire. It was one night. It was a couple of days after my 17th birthday. I just got my driver's license. Of course I was already driving when I was like 14. So he taught me how to drive. I had a three speed Dodge pickup. It's 1982. This is a 1973 speed Dodge pickup. I got a motorcycle strapped in the back of the 
van. He gives me the directions. I said, where am I going, Uncle Sally? He goes, well, you're going 128th Street and Park Avenue. I said, okay, where the fuck is that? He's like, you're going to go through the Midtown Tunnel. You're going to get to Park Avenue. I mean, there's no GPS back then, guys. You're going to, you're going to make a right turn, and you're going to head yeah. north of Park Avenue. You count till you get to 128, and you stop. Here's the guy's name. Go to a cell phone. Call this guy on his cell phone number. He's going to give you $400 for the bike in the back of the truck. Okay, no problem. I'm getting in the car. It's late at night. It's a winter night. 41 years ago. Okay. I'm in the car. Uh, he's like looking at me, you know, in the van. He's like, what the hell are you doing? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? Said, you can't go up there without the dog. He opened the truck and Chico, the doberman popped into the truck is now riding shotgun with me. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell do I need the dog for? When I got to Harlem and the fucking place was burning. Okay. This is before the gentrification. And this was a uh, nasty shit going on crime ridden New York city. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? What the hell am I doing up here? Okay. And these three guys come over to the truck and they're like, what do I got in the truck? And I rolled down the fucking window. I said, what do I got in the truck? Let me show you what I got in the fucking truck. I grabbed the dog by the choker collar and shoved the dog's face out the, of course he was barking <laughs> like a fucking lunatic. I got out of the truck with the Doberman. I said, I'm looking for whoever the fuck it was, Joe Smith or John Smith. And, oh, yeah, we, we know the guy. Okay, hold, hold on. And the guy comes down. He's got $360. I'm never fucking forget this the rest of my life. So I'm counting. I got the, the back of the truck open. I'm counting signals in the back of the truck. He's got $360. He says, well, you know, give me the bike. I said, give me the bike. I said, I need 400 fucking dollars. I said, dude, I'm making $3 an hour. My uncle's the cheapest motherfucker that you'll ever meet. I'm making $3 an hour. I said, you're not getting the bike for $360. So he says, okay, you got to give me 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes. I said, dude, I'm going to give you 10 minutes. I'm getting the hell out of here. I got the dog. The truck is open. I got the dog. 10 minutes later, he comes back with this brown paper bag. And there's $40 in nickels, dimes, and quarters in the bag. He broke into a fucking soda machine. Okay. And now we're counting the nickels, dimes, and quarters. I go back to Long Island. I got $360. $40 in coins. It's after midnight. Okay. I was scared out of my fucking mind. I almost shit my pants. I, I got to my uncle's house at one o'clock in the morning, banging on the fucking door. And he opens the door, cracking up. Ho, 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 ho. You got a baptism, huh? You like, you like North Harlem in a fucking winter night? I said, you are a crazy motherfucker. My mother would fucking kill you if she knew what you did to me. <laughs> That's that, how I grew up. Okay. I don't that, tell that story to everybody, but since you guys are like me, I'm going to tell you, I don't, I mean, that's how I grew up. Yeah. So when I'm in situations like Trump, I mean, give me a fucking break. Exactly. Trump's going to go after my wife on the presidential tree. This Jeez. guy's never been in a bar fight. This fucking fat pussy, you know? Okay. You're going to go after my wife. Let's go. Yeah. I love you know, that. We'll right. Fight, we'll fight yeah. to the fucking death. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to take your fucking bullshit just because you're, yeah. Now, look, if he was Vladimir Putin and we're in a different society, <laughs> I pack up my fucking bags and I leave. He's going to serve me polonium tea, right? Sure, sure. But, you know, we're still in a society, thank God, where they work for us. We don't work for them. Yeah. Who the fuck I, is he? I love that. No, no, you're absolutely right. Like uh, put, putting the whole Trump thing into context, you, you know, you've been in through way different situations, a lot more pressure, yeah, right? I mean, I, I, was, I mean, that was that was ridiculous. Going after yeah. my wife, I gave the guy a million dollars personally to help him with his campaign. He fired me. I deserve to be fired. I never... I never blame my firing on anybody. I took full responsibility for my firing. 
why'd you get fired? I said something stupid. Trump and Kelly decided to fire me. Let's move on. I try to stay loyal to the guy, but if you're going to act nuts, yeah. you can't stay loyal to somebody. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, you can't act that nuts. I got a business I'm trying to run. Yeah, that's what, you know, I don't look at, I know, I know a lot of people nowadays associate you as like being in politics. I don't really look at you as like a politician, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you're an you're no. investment finance guy, but uh, what I think uh, politicians could learn is like you owned up to your mistakes. You didn't hide behind it. No, you had to do you, that, man. Like, well, you guys are in trading. It was the a trading thing, thing, right? The number yeah. one thing a trader's got to do is mark himself to the market every day. Yep. You can't pretend that the thing's moving with you when it's moving against you. You gotta, you gotta look at it for what it is. Yeah. You know, the world, the, the best traders deal with the world the way it is, not the way they want it to be. Ultimately, that's how you're going to be a success. If you yeah. pretend that the world's a, a way that it isn't, you're going to get destroyed. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No. And that's, that's, that, that's what I was thinking when we, you know, getting ready to talk to you. I was like, man, like that, that's what the politicians could really learn from traders. And that, that's what I was going to plan on uh, asking you. But, you know, uh, you know, Mooch, I want to ask you, what was the golden, the environment? I want to know what the environment of Goldman's was like in the late eighties, early nineties. So very interesting place. It was tough, but it was cordial. There was a collegiality to it. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was run by a U.S. Marine by the name of John Weinberg. Uh, when I got there, old man Weinberg, his father, Sidney Weinberg, wow. uh, uh, went from sh being a shoe shine boy to running Goldman Sachs and helping Goldman Sachs through the 1929 stock market crash. Mm -hmm. His son went to Princeton, got drafted into the U.S. Marine Corps, fought in the Pacific, came back to the United States, went to work for Goldman, rose to the ranks of Goldman, became its senior partner. And he was one of the more down-to-earth, no-bullshit human beings I ever met in my life. And I got very lucky because I was when I got after I got fired from banking and I ultimately moved into private banking, I got staffed on a team that had Mr. Weinberg's account. And oh. so uh, his birthday was January 5th. My birthday was is January 6th. It was yesterday, actually. And I, I used to have a birthday meal with him every year. And he had some of the best aphorisms. What were they? Uh, trees don't grow to the sky. They stop growing at a point. Uh, so, you know, be careful with the markets. Mm -hmm. uh, Anthony, some people grow, other people swell. Be careful who you are in life. Mm -hmm. You want to be somebody that's growing and not swelling. Uh, he had so many, so many good aphorisms. He was a very down to earth guy and it was reflected in the leadership at Goldman. So, he pulled no punches. Uh, I remember my first training class where he made a presentation. Now, we were in the training class in 1989. I graduated from Goldman, different presentations. The old man came in to make a presentation, and he said, okay, you're all gunslingers, right? You're from fancy schools. You're smart, hardworking guys and women. You're gunslingers. Point the guns outside. Shoot them this way. Don't turn the guns on each other. Okay. What's going to separate us from our competitors is we're going to focus like this. You said what happens at Lehman and Drexel and CS First Ball, all these places, mm -hmm. they got one gun on each other while they're trying to shoot the other gun out here. We don't want that. Shoot the guns this way. And no backbiting, no sniping. Now, of course, look, it's politics. Of course, there was backbiting and sniping, but it was reduced as a result of his no bullshit, take no prisoners mentality. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, I took that with me when I started Oscar Capital. I took that with me when I started uh, Skybridge. For 11 days, I had that with me inside of Washington. But let me fucking tell you, man, these people are allergic to that type of shit. Oh, they'll yeah. stab, they'll, they'll pick your eyeball out with an ice pick while they're eating <laughs> exactly. ice cream with you. They'll be smiling at you while they got your, your yeah. eyeball on an ice pick and they put the eyeball in their martini glass and they're eating their ice cream while they're looking at you. That's Washington. You know, I said to some woman on the front lawn of the white house, I'm a, I'm a front stabber, man. I, I mean, these people here, I don't know what the hell they're doing. They're backstabbing. Each other. I'll tell you right to your face. And so that it was, it was, it was not the right fit. You want to talk about a trader in a <laughs> political environment, forget it. These yeah. people yeah. are looking you in the face, smiling while they're trying to carve out one of your eyeballs. Exactly. I worked in government before I got a job on the desk. It was how I got, I got a job next to the exchange so I could, you know, network with people, but I worked for the government for two years and Oh my God. Oh yeah. Well, you, you, you experience it and it's all the same stuff. So it doesn't matter if it's a local government, it's the state government, the provincial government in Canada, the U S government, it's all the same stuff. You know, I don't, I don't underestimate that in other countries too. You know, everyone here thinks, well, president Xi, he must totally control that country. You think so? You don't think he has, adversaries in the Politburo in China? You think Vladimir Putin has no adversaries in Russia? I mean, they, they're watching their backs as carefully as anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a, it's an axiomatic fact. Their systems mm-hmm. are different than our systems, but they have one commonality, people. And people are people, guys. You know that from trading. People are people. Yeah, so Anthony, obviously, obviously you, were, you were successful enough to go out on your own start, Oscar Capital, uh, thinking back to then, did, did you have like any uh, bread and butter trades, bread and butter investments that really like, you know, catapulted you? Um, yes, I'm going to think about that carefully because I want to set the scene for you. OK, it was the mid 90s. We were in a raging, raging bull market. OK, so I'm going to really take you back. 1995. Netscape, a guy by the name of Mark Andreessen, who's now running Andreessen Horowitz, took Netscape public. He had invented the Netscape browser. He was a mid-20s-year-old kid. And that browser was going to give us this opportunity to converse with each other over the internet and to interact. And this was the rise of email. Can you believe that? I mean, it was, I didn't have an email account when I joined Goldman, but I got one by the by the mid 90s. And so there was a technological transformation that was happening at the time. And at the same time, there was uh, uh, the baby boomers were in their peak consumption and growth mode, right? The Bill Clinton era. And so the market was ripping 25% in 95, 25% in 96, 28% in 97. And so I was long a shitload of that stuff. And it got me wealthy because, and again, I'm going to tell you how stupid I am. I was leveraged long. Okay. And so, you know, you don't want to confuse brains of the bull market, but you get three years levered long, 24, 25, 28% returns. You're now creating a nest egg for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I left, I mm-hmm. left with that nest egg. And, and then I got really lucky guys. Uh, in 1997, I had an unbelievable year. 
Uh, I think we were up 80% on one in 20 money, 200 million bucks. My partner and I split the VIG on that. Um, and, it, you know, I, I paid off all my school debt. I bought myself a house in cash, no mortgage. Uh, and then the worst thing that can possibly happen to you when you're a young man or woman in our business, be right consecutively mm. for too long. Sure. Then you start believing your own bullshit and you think you're smarter than the market and smarter than everybody. And so in 1998, I got the living daylights beat out of me by the stock market. I was levered long going into the Russian ruble crisis. The oh, Russians man. were defaulting. Yeah. Uh, you may remember this. Uh, yep. Definitely. It sounds like he remembers it. I got long crushed. Time. There was a hedge fund by the name of long-term capital management 23 short years ago, mm -hmm. almost 24 years ago. Merriweather. Merriweather. John Merriweather got caught. He had a billion dollars under management or $4 billion under management, but he was controlling through leverage $125 billion of securities. That's like a half a trillion dollars today. Mm -hmm. And he seized the markets and the Fed, the Fed had to come in and intervene first big intervention. They forced the banks to give him the money to clear up his trades. Um, I went down 35% in my PL in, I would say a six week period of time. It was emasculating. It was like getting skinned alive and rolled in margarita salt. Now, the good news for me is I had bought my house in cash and I had, you know, paid off my debt. And so when I got hit, I was able to recover, but I have never run leverage again from that day. And I can tell you that 1998 prepared me for 2008 because 1998 was a dress rehearsal mm. for 2008. And then of course, 2008 was a dress rehearsal for COVID-19, you know, and, and if you don't have leverage, it's a big lesson to people you may not be the richest person on planet earth. If you're starting with nothing like I did, uh, you're not going to get to, you know, gajillionaire status, perhaps without leverage. But let me tell you something, I have an amazing life. And if you live without leverage, you can stay young forever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my well, lesson to people is why do you need to go that to that extreme? And so yeah. I built a successful unlevered business. It's had its ups and downs in our markets. Uh, but, you know, when we got hit in March of 2020, we came back pretty quickly as a result of that philosophy. Just, uh, I, I read your book and, uh, you know, leverage can be a fickle bitch. That is, that's, you know, uh, that's beautiful. I'll use that in my room. Yeah, I, le yeah. leverage. I said leverage can be a fickle bitch. I said leverage is a machete coming out of the center of your steering wheel. And you're in a sports car with rear wheel drive, driving downhill on an icy mountain road <laughs> in Europe. Yeah. And so the minute that you need to hit that break, the minute you don't want that leverage anywhere near you is when the leverage is going to do the most damage, right? I look at some of these guys, you know, like I've got a big, big exposure in crypto and big exposure in Bitcoin on lever. These mm -hmm. guys, man, they're levering crypto. I mean, you got to be kidding me, man. That's like mainlining heroin while you're smoking <laughs> crack in the crack house. What are you guys doing? You know, yeah. you know some people have leveraged heavy, heavy in crypto. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. that's that's why you get all these big rocketing upward moves and these yeah. big shakeouts because, you know, once you get hit, 
and then those stop losses kick in, it's like a, it's like a negative cascade, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. What, uh, you know, what did you think of this whole Archego situation with Bill Wang? Just, do you think there's more of those lurking out there because the primes lent him so much money and it's almost like they weren't talking to each other. It was like going to six different bookies, you know? So, so I have a theory about that, JJ. I yeah. think every 15 years that shows up. Okay. Okay. And so there was a group and I'm losing uh, track of the names now. It started with an A. I'd have to go look it up, but it was. Oh, a, the natural, Brian Hunt. What was it? Uh, Amaranth Advisors. Brian Amaranth Hunter. Advisors. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that Archigo story 15 yeah, was, years ago, right? Those that's very, right. It, yeah, that those was were, 15 years ago. Yeah, it doesn't those are seem like it. Very, very smart guys. Yeah. But they got over the boat, super long natural gas. They got it wrong. They blew up a $10 billion fund. Yeah. And you know, it's it's and, funny because in your book, you, you talk about um, uh, Julian Robertson. And I still remember Julian Robertson on CNBC talking about that. The funniest thing was he couldn't believe somebody in Canada would have a Bentley. Because Hunter was driving around Calgary in a Bentley, and he, you know, he was like, "And he's in Canada in a Bentley." It's like, what? They have roads there, really? I was, yeah, I mean, I couldn't. I mean, it was so funny. Yeah, no, know? and and by the way, you know, to Julian's credit, you may remember this. He was short U.S. Air. He got his doors blown off in two thousand. He said, "Okay, look, I'm done. I'm out." He he cashed yeah. out, but you know, obviously he he stayed in in terms of his own money, and he gave it to the Tiger Cubs, and he mm -hmm. bought some big pieces of land in New Zealand. He's got some great golf courses there. He's almost 90. He's a phenomenal guy. I lived out here on Long Island. I know him forever. Oh, cool. Uh, but here's, here's a couple of things for people to think about. Julian Robertson was an institutional salesperson. He got his start as a hedge fund manager at age 47 in 1980. He's about to be 89 years old. Uh, you know, my friend, Kathy Wood, she made the bulk of her money from 58 to 66. So I want wow. you to think about how great this business is. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking about the meritocracy of this business. The market doesn't care if you went to Harvard. The market doesn't care if you went to college. You know, this is, you, you live or die by your performance, your ac acumen, your niftiness, your commerciality, irrespective of what your pedigree is. And the market doesn't care if you're 50, 20, 90. I've got a friend by the name of Sam Bankman Freed. He runs FTX. He's 29, about to turn 30 this year. He's worth $24 billion. He just named the Miami Heat Sports Arena, formerly named the American Airlines Arena, the FTX Arena. He put his logo on every Major League Baseball umpire so it could be seen in the shot while they're calling balls and strikes and he's building one of the more successful crypto exchanges out of the Bahamas. He moved it out of Hong Kong because the regulation got tight on him. Um, but this is a kid, 29 years old market doesn't care. Okay. The market doesn't care if you're 89 or 29. Uh, and I love that part of this and you can renew yourself in the markets. You know, when I got killed in 1998, I said, okay, what did I learn? I wrote it down. I said, let me redeploy myself. And I had a much more successful run 98 to 08 than I did 88 to 98. And so, so what, do you, what do your listeners need to know? Adapt, learn, 
be neurally plastic. Don't be wedded to things. Uh, accept the world the way it is. Mark yourself to the market. Uh, have patience. You don't have to strike and win every single time. If anything, you're losing trades where you've cut your losses successfully uh, are as valuable as your winning trades because you're preserving capital. You know, and you gotta and you gotta stay disciplined. You know, this is a disciplined man or woman's game. This is not a hero's game. Nobody needs to be a hero in the markets. You just need to survive and get more things right than wrong. Love it. I want to, uh, Moosh, I want to, I want to circle back to the Netscape trade. Do you remember how you landed on that trade in the first place? Well, the thing went public, you know, it, it, and uh, it, it was, uh, there was a lot of buzz. I was a retail stockbroker at Goldman. It went public mm -hmm. through Morgan Stanley and I bought a shit ton of it. And then I started buying other tech names that were derivatives of that name, you know, and this is what's going on now with Web3. You know, remember, guys, we used to get into get onto the internet. We used America Online, Alta Vista, Ask Jeeves. Yep. And nice. and you know, they had they had the market share back then. And then a company came along by the name of Google. And people were like, Well, why the hell do we need Google? We've already got this installed base of players. But it turned out that Google had a much more successful search engine and a more successful algorithm and a result of which it leapt over those and, and took share from everybody. And so that's another big thing. You got to be neurally plastic. You've got to see down the road, or if you're in Canada, where the puck is going, you have to <laughs> anticipate that. And you may be wrong about that, but at least you got to put some bets on related to that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I've done that in Ethereum and Bitcoin and Algorand and some of this other web three stuff that I've, uh, I put some bets on. I don't want to be the old man that misses the next big wave because I made money in the old wave and now I'm too old fashioned to see the new wave coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to speak exactly. to you about being uh, fluid, going to where the puck's going. Swiss yeah, army no. knife, man. You want to be yeah. a Swiss army knife. You don't, you don't want to be a blunt instrument, be a Swiss army knife. Yeah. Pull the tools out. Pursue it to the environment you're living in. Moosh, mm -hmm. when you had when you had some down years, um, did you lose confidence? Did you deal with sure. you know right. stuff like that? How did you go through that? Self-loathing. Yeah. Let me tell you something about clients, man. Clients are long-term investors until they have short-term losses. <laughs> yeah. No, by the way, they blame everything on you, man. You know, COVID nineteen, your fault. Should have saw <laughs> it. You know, the global financial fight, that's your fault. Long-term capital management, no, your fault. You know, and, and I tell clients, you guys want a free ride. You want a 45 degree angle of asymmetric returns. And yet nothing works like that on planet Earth. Apple didn't work like that. Amazon didn't, yeah. didn't work like that. Google didn't work like that. There's no ride like that. There was one guy that said he had a ride like that and he died in jail. That was Bernie Madoff. There's no mm -hmm. ride like that. So a big part of my life, because I have clients still, is training and conditioning my clients. Hmm. You know, don't cut and run at the worst moment. Okay, the worst time to have sold Skybridge was March 31st, 2020. You should have been buying Skybridge. Now, of course, you got all these propeller heads at these wirehouses. They put the sell <laughs> on at the absolute wrong time. 
and then they'll put the buy on at the absolute wrong time, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm that that's also human nature. So I'm not chastising them. I'm just observing them. And so I can transact in a realistic environment. I get human nature, right? And I don't want to judge anybody too harshly. And I don't want to be judged too harshly. We're fallible human beings. So I'm not saying it derisively. I'm just saying it from an observation perspective. Right. Right. I get it. People want to keep their jobs. They don't want to look stupid. Yeah. You know, and when, when Bitcoin goes from 20,000 to 69,000, you're a genius. When it goes from 69,000 to 41,000, you're an imbecile. I don't think you're either. I think you either, you know, you, you're going to be right or wrong. Um, I, it's reminiscent of the Amazon story. You know, Amazon, you got time for a quick Quick story, but I think oh, I, you, I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it left a big impact on me. Okay, I'm going to set the scene for him. 35. I'm in a meeting. It's 1999. Jeff Bezos has taken his company, Amazon, public two years prior. Amazon went public May 15th, 1997. It's July of 1999. I got my notebook out. I'm at the Sun Valley Allen & Company conference. Jeff Bezos is making a presentation and he's telling people there, I'm not a bookseller. I am going to be a global internet retailer. I'm selling books because look, they're roughly the same size. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to dot plot what's going on from a logistics and warehousing perspective. And this is a very cheap way to do that. Once I've got that figured out, mm. I'm going to open it up to all these other SKUs and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, dominate internet retail. I thought oh, this fucking guy's brilliant. I'm writing it all down. I got to go buy the stock. He said, oh, but by the way, the next 10 years, I'm not going to make a dollar. Well, why aren't you make a dollar, Jeff? Well, I'm going to put all of this money into warehousing and infrastructure and logistics and web services. And I don't plan on making any money until I've got it scaled. Then I'll turn the switch on and start making money. So I'm not looking at this quarter to quarter like these public companies. This is a 10-year plan. So I go, wow, this guy's brilliant. I wrote it all down. Okay, so I got to go invest in this thing. The next guy to speak was a guy named Warren Buffett. You ever hear him? Mm -hmm. So he's going to speak next. He's 70 at the time. He's 90 now. He says, ah, that's a very nice conversation, Jeff. Beautiful conversation. I'm not putting a penny into that stock. I don't understand this whole internet thing. It's completely overhyped. Uh, can you believe that this guy's company, a, a nice conversation, and you're a fine young gentleman, but can you believe that this guy's company is worth more than the storied Sears Roebuck? This guy's company is worth more than Sears Roebuck. Sears Roebuck has got plants and equipment and real estate, and they make money. This guy just told you he's not going to make money for 10 years. I'm not giving this guy a dollar. <laughs> so you know what I did? I ripped up my notes. I threw them in the garbage. Oh. I didn't give them a dollar. Oh, wow. Because I'm stunned, right? You know that expression. <laughs> yeah, we all do. We so all now, do this. So now, let me give you the math, okay? Amazon, if you, if you bought the stock on its public offering May 15th, 1997, you put $10,000 in Amazon, it's worth $22 million today. You had to subject yourself to eight periods of time where Amazon dropped 50%. One period of time where it dropped 90 and the Barron's Newsweekly said, hey, this is Amazon.bomb. The age of this internet retailer is over. Of course, Jeff took that. He put it in a frame. He put it on his wall at, at, uh, at, in, in Seattle. 
but you had to have the fortitude and you had to have the strength to see it. Okay. That's Bitcoin today. Mm. That is Bitcoin. Bitcoin has scaled faster than Amazon, Google, Apple, and Facebook to a trillion dollars. It got there in 12 years. You're in the 13th year of Bitcoin. If you really understand what the blockchain is doing, it's delayering the civilization again. It's another quantum leap in economic efficiency. And Bitcoin represents property in that space. And you can buy waterfront property at a very steep discount in Bitcoin because people are not ready for Bitcoin and it is not adopted yet. This is an early adopting technology story. And like all of those early adopting technology stories, it's going to come with a volatility curve of uncertainty. And you either see it and you invest in it and hold tight. And again, invest in it, size it appropriately so you don't blow yourself up. But, you know, I think, I think there's the opportunity. And so I don't want to miss this one. I missed the last one. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to miss this one. Yeah. It, so it that, seems- that's what I've learned from my 33 years of getting my teeth knocked out and my head kicked in on Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. It, it seems like a lot of people who went through that era, uh, or, or at least the ones, uh, they're echoing the same sentiment, like not missing this, uh, missing it this exactly. time. Now, now, Anthony, did you always feel this way about uh, Bitcoin? or blockchain when you first heard about it? No, I thought it was a fucking joke. Okay, come on, guys. I mean, I looked at the same way you probably thought, what's this internet bookseller song? I thought it was a joke, okay? I I didn't get hit in the head with a rock until I left the White House because people don't remember this, but I was actually the chief strategy officer at the XM Bank before I became the White House communications director and I'm in the government and I'm sitting in a meeting where they're talking about the digitization of currencies, including the potentiality of eventually digitizing the US dollar. There's mm-hmm. discussion about digitizing the yuan. And of course, this would have to be done over the blockchain. And I'm like, oh my God, I mean, this is going to happen. When I got fired from the White House, the first thing I did was buy the URL skybridgebitcoin.com. And then I immerse myself in understanding what was going on. And so, no, I went from skeptic to realist to investor, but also because I'm a cautious guy, I I had on my list a checklist. I said, okay, Bitcoin's got to get to 100 million wallets. I got to figure out a way to cold store it where it's unclipped from the internet. I've also got to be comfortable with the regulation. Trust me, the Canadians helped with that last year with the cash ETF. U.S. comes in with the futures ETF, likely to have a cash ETF at some point. But I, I'm like, okay, they're not going to they're not going to regulate this out of existence. A hundred million wallets. When I made my first investment, guys, we're at 240 million wallets right now. Okay, and climbing. Okay, if we get to a billion wallets, there's only you tell me there's 21 million coins. Mm-hmm. A couple of million of them have been lost. There's probably 18-ish, 19-ish million Bitcoins left. You know, some of them are in a BlackBerry, in a landfill, a, a laptop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Some, it's on a Nokia phone from 2009. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, so you got, you know, 18, 19 million coins left. You're going to have a billion wallets. This thing's going to get pushed up in price. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and if you really get it, all our money is, is a ledger between each other. That's all it really is. Exactly. And so now you have this purified mathematical ledger that's incorruptible 
based on the computer programming and the software. And to me, I think it's going to stick and it's going to have a share of transactional activity. And I'll, I'll leave you with this thought on Bitcoin because it's real. The country of El Salvador said, we're going to allow this to be legal tender. We have a lot of expats in the United States that are from El Salvador. What do they do? They make their money here. They send the money back to El Salvador. Now, some of them are not banked. They're an underbanked community. Maybe they're making their money in cash. They don't even have a bank account. So what do they do? They go to Western Union. They, send a th they made $1,000. They're going to send it to their mom in El Salvador. They go to Western Union. They give them the cash. The money gets wired to mom. But Western Union takes anywhere from 7 to 10%. Mm -hmm. So they make 1,000. They wire 930. Western Union makes 70. Well, since the inception of Bitcoin as a legal currency, the El Salvadoran expat community has saved $400 million in Western Union transaction fees. Wow. Well, I am giving you a real life example and you can go Google it, $400 million. So you want to think about MasterCard and Visa and that 3% mm. that they've had for 60 years over the blockchain. We're going to be able to transfer value between each other without these third-party intermediaries. And I think that's a seismic long-term event for the economy. And I think that's something that the marketplace is going to accept the same way I made a transatlantic phone call in 1985, cost me $3 a minute. And now I can log on to an internet cafe somewhere in Europe and make the same phone call for $0 a minute. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Is, uh, is Algorand, is that uh, something you can talk about a bit? Yeah, I no, I'm happy, I'm happy yeah. to talk about it. I would encourage people to go to the Algorand.com or the Algorand Foundation, read the white paper. Um, Algorand is a layer one protocol. So it's like Ethereum. It's like Solana. Uh, it has an ability to put a smart contract on top of the token and transact. Okay. Um, one of the problems with these layer one protocols is that they are trying to solve for what the cryptocurrency community calls the trilemma. If you want a super successful cryptocurrency, it needs to be scalable. Mm -hmm. It needs to be decentralized, meaning there's no one power authority that could control it particularly the supply of it. Got it. And then the third thing is it has to be secure. And that also means downtime. You know, Solana was down yesterday. The system is somewhat creaky. Um, in 19, sorry, excuse me, in, in 2018, a gentleman by the name of Silvio McCauley, he was a leading cryptographer at MIT. He won the Turing Award in 2012 which is effectively the Nobel Prize for computer programmers, he invented Algorand, which is shorthand for algorithmic randomization. And he basically took what was out there and he refined it and improved it. And so he has a protocol that is net negative carbon. It has no gas fees like Ethereum. It's solving for the trilemma. It's scalable, decentralized, and it's limited to 10 billion coins. And I believe, you know, we were talking about 
Web One, where you had Alta Vista and you had these other leaders of the early stages of Web One, they got eclipsed by Google. I think Algorand is that technical property. I think wow. Algorand, uh, as people experience the speed of Algorand, the cheapness of transacting on Algorand, and uh, you know, and I'm obviously close to it. I've got a I got a quarter billion dollars in it, so you'd be like, okay, he's obviously talking his book. But this is based on a lot of research. You know, I, I'll, you know, as an example, Axios XL, one of the largest insurance companies in the world, after a year's worth of due diligence, made a decision that they were going to use Algorand to create their asset-backed market for the art world. So you've heard of mortgage-backed securities. Yep. Yeah. Axios XL is creating art-backed securities. They're tokenizing and liquefying art and they've decided that Algorand is the safest, fastest, most secure way to do that. And I think Algorand becomes the sort of enterprise software or the enterprise token protocol. Ethereum will be with sort of the smaller, nerdy computer programming com community, but Algorand, I think, will leapfrog over them. And uh, that's why I'm a, a proponent of it. And listen, you know, I've been humbled by markets, guys. I've been humbled by life and markets. I may be wrong. I'm not saying I'm right. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but I think I'm right. And if I'm right, we've got a nice move here. This could go from $1.70 to 10 bucks, and people will be very happy. If I'm wrong, I've got it sized right where, you know, I chalk it up as another learning lesson and, and have to analyze what I missed. But again, you have to size your positions appropriately pursuant to risk. Yep. And you have to be self-aware enough to know what you know and what you don't know. And what do the three of us know? It's the things that we think we know with great certainty that get us in the most trouble, right? Mm, definitely. If I sit here with unbelievable conviction and I'm locked and loaded, that's usually the thing that's going to blindside me, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's Definitely. echoed by, I think every trader we've talked to on here and, and a lot of them even mentioned Mooch that some of their best trades have been the ones they were, you know, a little bit skeptical at least. Right. And that's why we come in, we size appropriately, you know, you know, to, to the fact, um, you know, talking about the, the fees of Ethereum, that's why I kind of gravitated towards some like layer two investments. I think Algorand, uh, is great as well. Um, you know, for, for me, you know, I've been, I've been involved in for a little bit, the fees of Ethereum, uh, for layer one, I think it's a big problem. Um, but you know, that's a, that's a top, you know, I don't know if that's a topic you want to go into. We could skip over that. Um, well, no, I'm, ha I'm happy to talk about it because I do, yeah. I spent a lot of time on it. You know, I mean, you've got very high gas fees on Ethereum and they know it's a problem and they're trying to figure out a way to reduce the gas fees. You also, their transaction speeds are okay, but Algorand eclipses them by a factor of 10. Yeah. So if I, if I went to, let's say, I'm a skeptic on the blockchain and I am a fortune 50 company, but now my team is telling me I have to tokenize parts of my business. Okay. Well, what layer one protocol am I going to use? If yeah. you go through the strengths and weaknesses of each of these protocols, you're heading for Algorand because you've got net carbon neutrality and in, in Algorand's case, negativity, you've got low gas fees, you've got, a, a system that's never gone down, unlike Ethereum and Solana, mm -hmm. and it's scalable. And so, and so to me, as this evolves and more and more people come in, 
Um, I think that's going to be the protocol or one of the major protocols of the future. Not going to say it's the protocol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there will be, in my mind, 15 to 20 of these. Think about sure. it like enterprise software. You know, you've got Salesforce.com, AWS, the cloud on Microsoft, the cloud right. on Google, and they each have a sleeve depending on the company that you're in or depending on what your use case is. That'll be Solana, Ethereum, Algorand. Right, right. I think Algorand is, uh, is under the radar still. Uh, and I think, I think as people start to do this work in this next wave of adoption, right. uh, it'll become something that people choose. Right, right. No, I agree. I, th I think, the, you know, a lot like, yeah, I think a lot of these layer ones can succeed. It's not just going to have to be one or the other, uh, you know, and, and I guess like to, to um, I guess a lot of people who are bullish on Ethereum over the other layer ones. And I'm just curious to what you think is uh, the, like, I guess, like the first mover advantage, you know, like they're, they're the first one, they're here, they're established. Most of the, the, the popular dApps are, you know, on run on Ethereum blockchain. Uh, what do you think about that? So I'm a big fan, big fan of Ethereum. And I have an Ethereum fund, Skybridge Ethereum fund. Yeah. I have a lot of personal money in Ethereum. I've got several hundred million dollars of the firm's money in Ethereum. So again, I am not a winner takes all theorist in this space. Um, I think Ethereum has a lead. I think Ethereum is going to be with us. And I think Ethereum is going to be more valuable in five years than it is today. But will there be others that rise up as the marketplace expands? I do believe that. So I'm a big fan of Ethereum. So I'm yeah. long Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Algorand for right now. Yeah. I'll start adding more coins over time. But remember, you know, I'm an institutionalist because I had, you know, you know what a hard time I had convincing my clients to be in Bitcoin. I mean, somebody still wanted to <laughs> fucking kill me. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, yeah. I gotta move slowly because some of these people are like, are you crazy? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that's what that, that's what that's what I was curious about too. You know, the the receptivity of your clients, also other institutions. I know I know, you know, we hear like murmurs that all oh, institutions are coming into crypto. Um, are they tentative? I know, you know, we talked a little bit about the regulation. There, there's just a lot of thoughts I have. Well, you know, maybe some of the other people you talk to, what's what's uh well, well, everybody gets mad at me. You know, I, I don't, I, we saw a flurry of activity in the fall from institutions. We saw little to no activity prior to that. And we see little to no activity right now. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's, oh, the institutions are coming in big waves. I said, I'm sorry, I don't see that. I think the institutions are extremely cautious. When Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, goes on CNBC Squawk Box and says he has institutional demand for Bitcoin, then I'm going to go on television and say there's institutional demand for Bitcoin. But when he says, exactly. I don't see it, and I talk to all of my friends that are in the brokerage community, Kraken, FTX, Galaxy, Genesis, Gemini, I say, hey, any institutional? Yes, small, but it's not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. But when Larry Fink says that Bitcoin will be three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollars a coin, you know, meaning when it happens, you know, it's going to be like, okay, wow, that I didn't think that was going to happen, but it happened. You know, I didn't think Amazon was going to be the everything store and sell every URL imaginable in every country on Earth that the where the country's regulators allowed them into the country, mm -hmm. but they did do that. They made $22 billion in net profits last year. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah, yep. absolutely. So, so, to, so, so to me, 
you know, you either see it and you have a long-term bias towards it or you don't see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'd imagine there's, there's probably not, it's probably going to be tough sell for your clients on NFTs. And, but not to say that I won't be an investor, okay? not to say that I won't have money in NFTs, but yes, it's going to be hard because they're still getting used to the space. Sure. Yeah. Two or three years from now, yes, it'll be easier. But here's the thing. And I think people know this. Uh, it's so early, guys. It is so early. You know, 2% market saturation, 2.5% market saturation. You know, I just told you that there's 240 million wallets. Imagine we were having this conversation 12 years ago, and I told you, you know, there's a company called Facebook. It has 240 million users. Someday, because of exponential growth in Medcalf's law, it could have 3 billion users. So we're at 240 right now. It could go 10 plus times that, and then concomitantly, it will be reflected in its market capitalization. That's the opportunity that we have right now in crypto. So it is still yes. remarkably early, despite the early success from a saturation and an adoption perspective, it is remarkably early. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's awesome to hear coming from you. You know, you know, Mooch, I went down to, uh, I'm down here in Florida. I went to the, to the, the BTC conference in Miami and, you know, I, I've been a believer in these things for some years now, but just going and sensing the energy, meeting people from all over the world. It was, uh, it was another level of experience and not that I didn't have conviction before, but it even like furthered it. Um, it yeah, it was great. So I, I spoke at that conference in 2019. Mm -hmm. I was yet to have a position in Bitcoin and I basically put my checklist out. I don't know if they recorded the conversation, but I said, look, for me as an institutionalist, this is what has to happen to Bitcoin. And then somebody asked me a really smart question. They said, well, you know, you know if that happens, Bitcoin's going to be $20,000. I said, yes. Well, it's trading at $4,000 right now. Why don't you buy it here at $4,000? And I said, because I'm an institutionalist mm -hmm. and I recognize that if these things are happening, it increases the odds of the scalability, the executability, and the success. And a result of which... I'm more comfortable buying it at 20 versus four. Now it hit those numbers before that. I think we started buying our first coins at like 13 or 14,000. But the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, we're so early. You know, if, if this, if we're right and these coins trade in the next five ish years to a half a million dollars a coin, are you really going to care if you bought it at 36,000 or 66,000? Yeah, exactly. No, that's true. You know, exactly. Exactly. Did you, did you have a, I don't know. Did you catch any of that, uh, that hearing they had? Um, I did. Yeah. I was actually, I was actually away during that. Mm -hmm. And so I taped a lot of it and I watched it on the flight home from uh, Abu Dhabi. And of course I'm close to Sam Bankman fried and I enjoyed his testimony. And I think, the good news for Bitcoiners and crypto people, there's probably 50 million wallets now in the US related to Bitcoin. There's 74 million clients on Coinbase. And again, not all of them are US, but a lot of them are. And that is a decentralized lobbying committee for the Congress. The lobbying that those people can make as a result of their positivity towards crypto could overwhelm the Congress. 
And so you saw that last summer where they had that infrastructure bill. They were trying to put some language in the bill, Bitcoin positive. Other people were trying to put it in the language, Bitcoin negative. And the Bitcoiners were yelling and screaming and dialing into Washington every five seconds. And so they dropped it. And so the, the Congress is smart enough to know that they need to propitiously regulate this. You know, remember, the regulators did not want Uber. They were trying to figure out a way to shut Uber down. But the people wanted Uber. And you're still in a society where if the people want something, they're going to get it. And so to me, that was my reaction to all of that testimony. It was like, okay, they made a very bullish case for leave us alone so that you don't have capital flight and an intellectual brain drain from the United States. Yeah. Help us embrace this so that the United States can maintain its mantle of leadership in financial services for the next 30 years. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. You know, I think like the decentralization, there's, there's nothing more democratic, you know, than, than that. I, I believe yeah. it's, it's, it's very democratic. Um, so it's awesome. So to see, Mooch, we're going to wrap this up here. I got some rapid fire questions. Let's do it. Some Thank for me, you guys some for from... having me on. Oh, yeah. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Um, okay. Favorite historical time period? No question. Uh, it is the post-World War period for America. It's our country. Uh, the leadership in the post-World War II era was nothing short of exemplary. Far from perfect. What human system is perfect? But the United States set out to rebuild the world and to protect the world, to protect the democracies, and to create a burgeoning middle class globally. I don't want to bore you with all the details of it, but the combination of the Marshall Plan and the way we set up our trading agreements around the world, because we were the last standing superpower and the last industrial superpower, uh, remember, we had 65% of the world's output, 3% of the world's population, and these leaders understood that in order to make us safe and prosperous, we had to help the rest of the world. And so through the forces of the Marshall Plan and other things, this is my most favorite period of time in history, uh, uh, a group of statesmen and women that built the society that allowed me, a blue collar kid from Long Island, to get educated at an Ivy League school and go on and create two reasonably successful businesses. A lot of that was born from the serendipity of me being born in the United States. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Obviously, Mooch, other than this podcast, what, what's been your favorite media appearance? <laughs> well, this has been the fucking, especially looking at the fucking ape smoking a cigar. I'm going to go upstairs and get a brandy sniffer. I'm going to have a cigar after this is over. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. I've never, and I've never smoked a cigar. But no, I, I would say that I did one press conference from the White House podium, from the James Brady press room which sits on top of the old swimming pool that Jack Kennedy and FDR used to swim in. And so I don't know. I don't know how many people listened to it. It was a lot. And I handled questions from the most aggressive group of media in the world, the people that are the White House correspondents. And I took questions for 45 straight minutes without notes. And so to me, that was the most exhilarating, most fun thing I did in the media other than this podcast. Yeah, all right? clearly. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I mean, you know, when I walked off the stage, right, this is a true story. I come off the stage, 
So, okay. I thought that went pretty well. Somebody called me a name you guys would recognize. And so now I've left the press room. I'm heading back up to upper press where the oval office is. There's a guy you'd recognize. He said, are you crazy? I said, what are you talking about? That was the worst press conference ever. I said, seriously, I thought I did a pretty good job. He goes, can't tell the truth like that from the white house. I've already got, I've already got guys up here on the Hill looking for dirt on you to blow you out of this town. They're like, we can't have this guy up here. What are you fucking crazy? You can't talk like that from the white house. And 11 days later, I got my ass shut up. Well, if there's anyone to, to, to be able Life, to take man. heat, man, anyone to be able to take oh, heat, yeah. think on their toes, take pressure, I would think it would be a traitor. You know, Definitely. it's well, yeah. You know, listen, I, that was a lot of. I, I'm not, I'm not going to bullshit you. I told Chris Christie he may run for president. I said, dude, if you're running for president, you got to promise me one extra day as the comms director, right? I sort of need like a dirty <laughs> dozen days. <laughs> So I got him on tape. He's like, I promise you. I said, all right, look, I need to do a press conference too. He goes, oh, no problem. That'll get fucking ratings. No problem. Yeah, that'll get ratings. Absolutely. Exactly. You know, on, on this topic, um, Mooch, uh, you know, why would you take the, the comms job? You know, you, you're a hedge fund guy. You got a nice job. Why, why would you take it? Because I'm stupid is the first <laughs> answer. And because I allowed my pride, you want to talk about trading? Uh, don't allow your pride and your ego to get in the way of your decision-making investments, trading, personal decisions, or otherwise, you know, my wife probably hates Donald Trump almost as much as Melania hates him. I mean, it's fucking <laughs> up there, okay? I mean, she really fucking hates him. I mean, you know, you got to give Melania her due. I'm sure she hates him more than anybody on planet earth, but Deirdre's up oh, there. Geez. And so Deirdre's like, you shouldn't take this job. He's a total whack job. Don't take the job. But let me tell you what I was doing to myself. And you're Italian. So you can relate. Blue collar kid, grew up in a laborer's family. No one went to college. I hustled my way into an Ivy League school. I built two successful businesses. I now have the chance to work for the American president yeah. in the White House. Exactly. Big deal. Yeah. And, and, I, and I took the job. I let my ego and my pride try to force me a round peg into a square hole. And so, you know, look, I have to own that. That's my mistake. It's a cautionary tale for other people. Don't let your ego and pride get in the way. Um, but, you know, you know, honestly, there was naivete in there. I thought I was going to be able to help the country. I thought I was going to help the people I grew up with. And, uh, you know, I got blindsided by the events and I made a stupid mistake. I talked to a reporter that I quote unquote trusted, which you can't do. I said something really nasty about Steve Bannon, which was really fucking funny. And by the way, no way he could fucking yeah, but- do it. No way you can do what I fucking was, said, okay? Yeah. But in any event, and, you know, and it happened, you know? But let me tell you something. My contribution, I told Steve Colbert, I said, you may hate me. It doesn't fucking matter. I made a significant contribution to the United States and the world. Let me tell you what I did. When my suicide vest was going off in the White House, I was reaching for that son of a bitch, Steve Bannon, and I blew his ass out the fucking front door with me. Yeah. Because that crazy motherfucker did, yeah. <laughs> in, in the White House with Donald Trump during a pandemic, that would have been a really bad thing for our fucking world. And so as flawed as my experience was, that's my singular contribution that I'm very proud of. Yeah. Okay. And, I, and I've offered to debate that lunatic <laughs> anywhere on planet Earth at any time in any venue, and he can choose the moderator. And of course, he wants nothing to do with that because I can expose the charlatan nature of him, the malevolence of him uh, and what he's trying to do to wreak havoc on a 
multiracial, multi-ethnic society. You know, this is a beautiful, colorful mosaic of people known as America. And the sooner we embrace that and we embrace the idea that we can work closely together and solve our problems together, the better off we're going to be. When you're his nonsensical white supremacist nonsense uh, and the way he handles himself stirring up hate, I am very proud that I got that motherfucker fired alongside of me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can I, I can appreciate, I can definitely, you know, with so much uh, polarization that we're in, I, I could always appreciate you trying to uh, be more like, hey, like, how do we come together? Uh, we need more of that. It's crazy. It's not about right or wrong. Yeah. It's not about left or right. It's about right or wrong. It's common sense, man. We yeah, got to fix exactly. it. We got to fix yeah. it, guys. But this, that's why I always thought, you know, I, I really think like like people who like whether any type of like like because I came from poker, but, you know, trading, it's it's all the similar thing. We, we think a little bit different. I think more objectively, like you said, I want to see how uh, reality is. And uh, for whatever reason, maybe people from different professions, politics, they don't I don't know. They're not able to remove themselves from the emotion of the situation. Or, but also they only care about preserving their own power, man. I don't sure. want to sound so cynical, but they're like, OK, sure. what am I doing today? That's going to preserve my power for tomorrow. And I'm going to yeah. make a decision based on that. Yeah. And, and it's time that we stop that. And what am I going to do today? It's going to serve the most people in the country, the best policies. Yeah. Okay. Because that's what our great grandparents were doing and our grandparents. We got to get back to that. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've always handled the, uh, you know, uh, bringing back up the media appearances uh, going on like Bill uh, Maurer, uh, Stephen Colbert. Uh, you've always handled yourself uh, really well, even though those guys, you know, might, might be in opposition uh, a little bit to your views. I, I, I get the sense these guys have a good respect for you and they appreciate you coming on. Well, it's nice you to say I built a nice relationship with it. One of the funnier moments was on the last time I was on Bill Maher. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Bloomberg had entered the race and they oh, picked yeah. him up saying that this, you know, terminal does everything, including giving you a blow job. So Bill Maher <laughs> turned to me. <laughs> I guess I guess Mike had said that at some point when I said, listen, I own a Bloomberg confirm. I can confirm it does not give you a blowjob. But by the way, if it did give you a blowjob, I'd never leave the fucking office. What I said on, on the TV, you know? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. you know, you got to be able to have fun. You got to be able to make fun of yourself, too, if you're on a show like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Exactly. I've, I've always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed those. I, I went back. Well, I watched the clips. Well, on I, YouTube. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Two more. Uh, how, how depressing is New York sports right now? Well, it is the least volatile. You want to talk about trading? Yeah. It is the least because it's literally has fucking flatlined for 50 years. So it is the least volatile thing that you can be experiencing. Okay. It sucked yesterday. It sucks today. And it looks like it's going to suck tomorrow. Now, a couple of bright spots. Steve Cohen is learning on the job. He's going to be an amazing owner of the New York Mets and he's going to win us a championship. Okay. So sometime in my lifetime, when I just moved my seats, I moved my seats from, I had a luxury box, like, you know, sort of where the press is. I moved it down to where Jerry Seinfeld sits, you know, I was paying the extra dough because I, <laughs> I, I think this guy's going to win a world series. I want my ass in those seats nice. on the day that that happens, you know? So I'm a big believer in Steve. Nice. Um, I would say that the Jets, the Knicks, and the Rangers, my other three teams, you know, they can't figure it out because it's a cultural issue and it's an ownership decision-making oh. issue. Yeah. Seed the operations to the sports people, you'll start winning. 
the Steinbrenners will figure it out again. You know, they have a gifted group of people. Yeah. And it's just they've had a couple of bad breaks, but they'll they'll figure it out. But I'll say this about New York sports. I used to be obsessed with my teams and hated the other New York teams. Um, but after 9-11, I made a personal commitment as a New Yorker. I will never root against a New York sports team ever again. So when the Yankees were playing the Arizona Diamondbacks, I was rooting for the Yankees. Of course, it's probably why they lost the goddamn World Series in 2001, because I was rooting for them. You know, <laughs> but my point is, I'm never rooting for a New York team. I mean, against the New York team ever again, unless they're playing my New York team. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a diehard uh, Jets. Oh, me too. It's, I mean, come on. I got tough, destroyed, man. Liz. But I told my wife, I told my wife, it was a minute, 54 seconds. Brady had the ball on like the 15-yard line. I said, you know, he's, he's going to score. I just, just have to see how he does it. And then, of course, he goes for two like he did against the Falcons in the 2017 Super Bowl, gets the two. You know, and the Jets were beating Brady for everything but 15 seconds of that game. But of course, it was the last 15 seconds. That's why he is the GOAT. Okay. I ran into him once. I said, you know, I hate your guts, but I got to tell you, if you were a Jeff fan, I'd have your fucking name tattooed on my forehead like Mike Tyson. You know what I mean? I mean, I think he is one of the most gifted athletes ever. And he is a very hard worker. And so he's a great role model for kids. So when I say I hate him, I only hate him from a competitive perspective. You know, I adore him as an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just the ultimate competitor. Uh, I love his tenacity. You know, the intensity he plays with. Oh, uh, my God. I mean, I I tell all my Pat friend friends, I said, you fuckers, man. We had, you know, you're a Jeff fan. You know, we had Bill Belichick for 10. Bill Belichick was with with the Jets for one eleventh of a Scaramucci. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just you know, he was our coach for yeah. 1/11th of a Scaramucci, okay? For a day. Uh, incredible. I I I liked Vinny though, Vinny Testaverde, you know, getting get Vinny. So so Vinny Testaverde grew up out here on Long Island. He played yeah. for Sawanica. He had a gun. Used to watch him in high school. He was the man. Yeah. He was the man of Miami, the man for the Browns. Uh and we came close in 99. So, you know, remember that whole thing in Mile High Stadium, yeah. where it was Broncos yeah. Stadium. Yeah, I don't Mile know. High. Yeah. 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 But yeah, no, I, I I tend to agree with what you're saying, right? It starts at the top, right? Ownership. It's like, man. You like the I, fact that you're bringing up sports and I'm fucking trivializing everything. I'm telling you every fucking minute of every play, right? Oh, man. <laughs> How about when he fucked up his Achilles? Remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. After? Yeah. yeah. Disaster. Disaster. Yeah. yeah, it's been tough. Um, All right. Last one. Uh, I heard rumors that you bought Batman car uh, i don't know if it's from the michael keaton movie is this is this true and yeah. you drove it around if you, go, if you go to the if you go to the website chicks love the car.com <laughs> if you think i'm making that go to that website chicks love the car.com because keaton turns in the movie and someone says something about the car he says chicks love the car oh yeah says that's it in that batman voice that's right and yeah. so if you go to chicks love the car back.com i bought the batmobile from the 1992 second Michael Keaton movie, Batman Returns. Okay. Michelle Michelle Pfeiffer was in that movie as Catwoman. Catwoman, yeah. Danny DeVito played the Penguin. And it was a phenomenal movie. And that was a phenomenal concept car. It was built on a Ford 150 frame. Okay. And they loaded that car. It had a propane tank in the back, which was, you know, obviously a fake, you know, power booster in the back. But you could press a button and the flames would shoot out of the back of the car. 
you couldn't drive it on the street but I was driving that fucking car on Halloween in a Batman outfit. Okay? <laughs> I got no, fucking pictures of that shit. That's and beautiful. My, my kids love the car. I ended up selling it to a museum where it's in the public display now. Uh, but it was one of the funner things. But remember, I grew up with no money. And if you're a middle class kid on Long Island and you grew up in a motorcycle shop, you love things that move. Oh, Why? definitely. Because things that move are cheap. You know, yep. you buy your 79 Berlinetta for four grand. Exactly. Yeah, you, got a car. you wax it with the turtle wax all day, you know, and yeah. I, you know, look, I, I'll embarrass myself because I am a new, a little bit of a nouveau riche Italian. I do have a Lamborghini because that was, on my that was on my bucket list, man. I'd like, okay, someday I'm going to buy myself a Lamborghini, not a Ferrari. Cause you got to know the fight that Lamborghini had with Ferrari. Definitely. You know, it's a, it's a exactly. very classic fight. And Lamborghini to me, I like the styling of Lamborghini. I like the way the car hums. And so I own a Lamborghini and because I'm a car guy, how, how could you not be a car guy? If you grow up as a Paisan on Long Island, and exactly. Nouveau, you know, I mean, it would no money. Of course you're a exactly. car guy. What do you think you're going to uh, be? Exactly. You know? I, Hey, I worked at a bike shop too. I'm a gearhead too. So what so I was, my uncle JJ, he was selling BSAs, Ducatis. Oh, nice. You remember the BSAs? Oh the yeah. British yeah. Definitely. Home? Exactly. Remember, remember the triumphs? My uncle yep. was selling all that British stuff back in the sixties and the early seventies. Oh yeah. Hot that stuff, that stuff hot, was always coming off the road. So you guys was, were probably always busy. Hot stuff, you know? man. Hot. Oh stuff. yeah. Yeah. I grew up, you know, Lucas electronics and sure. You know, Oh yeah. You know, the Prince of darkness, John Lucas, <laughs> champion spark plugs, John Lucas. Yeah. yeah definitely. CZs. Remember the CZ dirt bikes? Yeah, all definitely. Oh yeah. Classic. Excellent. All right. Well, that, that will conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join JJ, myself, and a supportive community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Mooch, let the listeners know Thank where they guys. can find you. Anything else you'd like them to know? Uh, you know, at Scaramucci on Twitter. You can listen to my podcast at Mooch FM. And uh, it's a real honor to be on with you guys. God bless. And I wish you a great new year. Oh. And happy trading. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming thank on. You. Oh, you had well. Silvio. You had Stevie Van Zandt on the, the podcast. Silvio, oh, was oh yeah. Oh, he was the man. That would have been great. I huh? said to him, he looked great. I said, black may not crack, but beige, beige don't age. Beige. <laughs> Remember, Silvio's a Paisan. Yeah. You know, he's got yeah. that last name, Van Zandt. That's an adopted name, you know? Yeah. He's exactly. 100% Italian, you know? So I, I could relate to him. That was a beautiful conversation we had together, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, nice. I didn't get a chance to listen to it. I'm going to go back. I saw you had well, it on. I, I would so... encourage you to listen to it because you'll laugh out loud because Silvio yeah. thinks like us. I'm sure. You know, he, he's all about hustle and he's all about, you know, being creative and being yourself. And ultimately, that's what you're trying to get your viewers and listeners to think about. Live your true self. You don't have to live in airs or live for somebody else, but do what you want to do and do it passionately. That's what, that's what, uh, you know, Stevie Van Zandt's all about. Absolutely. Can't wait to go listen to it. Mooch. Thanks. All for right, man. Races with God bless so guys. Much. Happy, happy, God happy, bless. man. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. All right. So for the Mooch, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's a gorilla of House Street. You stop, so.